bless the name of the Lord. He is risen. He's risen indeed. This may be April 1st, but it is no April Fool's. The resurrection is not some myth. It has happened. It is a historical reality that impacts our lives. One more time, would you give it up for the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hey, stay standing. I just want to read 12 verses uh, to you uh, of the resurrection story. We're going to say a prayer. You're going to take a seat a little bit uh, after that prayer, and then we will be able to just walk through some things as we unpack this story. But this is from Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. And Luke says this, But on the first day of the week, that Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He, speaking of Jesus, is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. By the way, back then, you would never allow a woman to serve uh, as a witness in a court of law. It was a highly sexist society. They weren't seen as being credible witnesses. So the fact that Luke would say that the first witnesses were women, you can't make that up. If he was fabricating the story, he never would have done that. But... These words, verse 11, seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. Father, we rejoice that the fact that the tomb is empty and that Jesus, your son, is alive, which means, Lord God, for anyone who is in Christ... Though we may die in this life, like him, we will be raised again and will reign with you for all of eternity. God, would you just unleash the power of this story to us? There are people all over the map. There are those who are here today. They believe this. It has changed and wrecked their life in a great way. But there are others who are here, and this is their first time hearing this, and they wouldn't say that they're followers of you, Lord God. No one is here by accident. And so, Father, would you take my feeble attempts at articulation, and would you marry them to your spirit, and would your spirit draw so that many would say yes to you tonight and would get baptized as well. It's to that end, Lord God, I ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen, and amen. You may be seated. Her name was Henrietta Lacks, and me saying that name, most of you don't, don't know it. She was a a common woman who lived in Baltimore, thank you, and died in 1951 of ovarian cancer. But if you're in the medical profession, chances are, while her name may not ring a bell, her initials should, H-E-L-A, Hela. 
See, Henrietta Lacks, when she died, her body was the first body that researchers could continuously harvest cells from. Even though she died, her, her cells continued to reproduce. So they take those cells from this body that died in 1951, and out of those cells, they're able to research polio, and they came up with a cure for polio from Henrietta Lacks's body. Not only that, they've researched cancer and researched AIDS and all kinds of diseases have been able to uh, have a sense of cure to them. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is Henrietta's story is pretty fascinating because while she died, her cells would continue to live and those living cells would provide life for so many people. Dying, living life. Jesus Christ, though, is the true and greater Henrietta Lacks. He came to earth over 2,000 years ago, took on flesh, John would say, and dwelt among us. For 33 years, he walked among us. He lived the life that, that we could never have lived. He lived the perfect life, and because he lived that perfect life, he, he became an acceptable sacrifice, dying on a cross. And he had to die on a cross in order to atone, that is, to cover for our sins. Everyone in here is a sinner. We've all said things and thought things and done things we should not have said, thought, or done. And the atonement, the death of Jesus Christ covers every sin we have ever committing, are committing, and will ever commit in our lives. They buried him in a borrowed tomb owned by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And yet, praise God, three days later, as our story says, when they went to go find him, he was not there. I don't mean this as any disrespect, but Confucius is still dead. Muhammad is still dead. But Jesus Christ is living. He has resurrected now, I know, I know, I know, saying these things, there are people in this room, who, again, who are all over the map. Some of you, when you hear stories like the resurrection, when you hear what happens in Luke 24, you would, you would put that in the same genre or category as myth. For you, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is maybe like a Little Red Riding Hood or, or Harry Potter, for sure, for my aunt, I'll never forget my aunt Marion, she saw it as a myth, that kind of bread hypocrisy. Uh, I was a college student in Philadelphia many years ago, and uh, my aunt lived in Philly and not too far from where I was going to school, so on weekends I would go hang out with her. And I remember one weekend inviting my, my sweet aunt Marion to come to church uh, with us that Easter Sunday, and she said, absolutely not. If there's a Sunday for sure, you will never find me in church. It will be Easter or Mother's Day. I I'm not going there. I said, why Aunt Mary? She says, well, all my drinking buddies, and Aunt Mary could drink with the best of them. She says, they, they, they drop their bottles that weekend, and they go to, go to church on those Sundays. And here they are, those traditional days, kind of feed their hypocrisy. And, and my Aunt Mary said, I want no parts of that. To her, this whole resurrection thing was a, was a myth that kind of bred hypocrisy. Now, others of you, you, you wouldn't say that the resurrection is a myth, but maybe you would say it's a nice tradition. 
Now, I am down south, and uh, I've just moved here from California, and, and down south, there, there are a lot of people maybe who would still see this Easter deal as a nice tradition, something you do. Now, my mother, which is the reason why I've got on a suit, because mama don't play that, um, she's going to be watching this, uh, and she can't hear the gospel unless I'm wearing the suit, but uh, mama, uh, m- mama believes in the resurrection, but she's big on tradition. Every single year. My mother writes me a check, even to this day, to buy her grandchildren Easter outfits and in the most passive-aggressive motherly way requests that I take a picture of her grandkids in their Easter outfit and send it to her. I'm like, I'm 40-something years old. But it's a nice tradition for her and for maybe for some of you, you're here this evening because it's a nice tradition. Others of you, you would call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. You would say, I believe in the resurrection. But the truth of the matter is the resurrection really hasn't changed how you live. Sort of like the national anthem. If you go to a sporting event, you right before the sporting event happens, the people gather together and they place their hands over their hearts and they sing the national anthem. But when the national anthem is over and the tip-off happens, kickoff happens, first pitch is thrown... Nobody's thinking about the national anthem. It's a nice little tradition that does not impact how you play the game. And for some of you, that's the resurrection. Yeah, I believe it's true. I I believe it's a wonderful thing. But it really hasn't impacted your relationships or how you navigate finances. It really hasn't impacted your life. None of these is the Bible's vision of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the way the Bible presents it, it is not a myth. It actually happened. It's just not a nice tradition. It's not just something like the national anthem that doesn't impact how I live my life. No, the resurrection is the bedrock of life. In fact... The seminal chapter in the Bible on the resurrection, if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or maybe you're new to the things of faith, I want to absolutely encourage you to investigate these things for yourself. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, the guy who writes it, gives a stunning argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And listen with me to what he says. Paul says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith, my faith, is in vain. The resurrection hasn't happened. Then let us eat, meat, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Life has no meaning. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen. Jesus Christ is the biggest con man in human history. But now if the resurrection did happen, it totally changes the game for how we navigate this life. Again, if you're new to the Bible and you want to investigate these things for yourself, the New Testament begins with um, what's called four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I like to call these four Gospels four authorized biographies by God on the life of his son, Jesus Christ. 
Each biography kind of takes a different slant on who Jesus is. In fact, in all of these biographies, we we see the resurrection story. And if you were to read, watch it now, Matthew's biography on the life of Jesus, the way Matthew tells the resurrection, he adds a little detail. He says that as these ladies are going to the empty tomb, a great, actually in Greek, the, the language Matthew is writing in is the Greek word mega, a mega earthquake happens. Now this is interesting to me. Again, I just moved here from California. I've experienced my share of earthquakes. But you just think of all the natural disasters God could have decreed or allowed. Why an earthquake? One of the things about earthquakes that makes it unique from any other natural disaster is you can't forecast earthquakes. I mean, you can forecast tornadoes and you can forecast floods and other natural disasters. But with earthquakes, you really can't forecast them. And the other thing about earthquakes, which is really germane to the point that I want to make, is that earthquakes, pun intended, are the most unsettling things you can ever experience. I mean, any other natural disaster, you can, you can move to avoid if you have enough kind of forewarning. But earthquakes, you can't go anywhere. Why? Because the very thing you are counting on that you are assuming for support and stability is being rattled. The resurrection happens with an earthquake, and I think that's pregnant with meaning. I think the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is accompanied with an earthquake tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ unsettles anything and everything we've been leaning on for meaning, value, significance, and purpose and fulfillment in this life. It totally changes the game. In fact, some of you are here this evening, and to be honest with you, you're here because you've already felt some tremors in your life. Maybe college student, you're here because, man, here you are in college, and you just got the phone call, this nice, stable home you grew up in that you, you assumed would provide you with stability and security. You just found out mom and dad are getting divorced. It's a tremor. Uh, 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 others of you, maybe you're here, and man, we just came through 2020. In fact, a lot of ways, it, it feels like December 82nd, 2020, the way this year's been going. And we've been going through a pandemic, and you felt some tremors, maybe health-wise or career-wise or financial-wise. Maybe you're here because the, the, the things you've been leaning on for meaning, value, and significance are being rattled. One philosopher says we often turn to God when our foundations are shaking only to discover that it's God who's shaking them. Resurrection of Jesus Christ unsettles life as we've known it and gives us a whole new vision and a whole new way for navigating life. Well, Brian, what does exactly that, that look like? I, I need something practical. I just want to give you two things tonight. I know great uh, communicators give you three things. Forgive me. Don't mark me off. I'm only giving you two. And then we out. What is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What does it practically offer me? I, I love it. Two things. L- look again or listen again at Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. Luke says this. 
But on the first day of the week, again that Sunday, at early dawn, they, speaking of these women, went to the tomb, watch it now, taking the spices they had prepared. Now, when you think of spices, I don't want you thinking of oregano or um, garlic or uh, Lowry seasoning salt. By the way, if you don't know anything about Lowry seasoning salt, don't ever invite me to your house for dinner, all right? Um, I don't want you thinking about garlic or Lowry seasoning salt. Instead, what, what I want you to hear when you hear spices, these are things that, that they would do to prepare a dead body. It's almost like embalming fluid. Get the picture. Here are these women who've been following Jesus Christ for much of his, his, his ministry, and they're going to the tomb not expecting to see an alive Jesus. They're going to the tomb fully expecting to see a cadaver. They're not coming with hope. They're looking for closure. There's no expectation. There's no excitement. There's no faith. There's no belief. Many of us have read Eli Wiesel, that great literary legend, his wonderful book, Night. Here's Eli Wiesel. He grows up as a young Jewish boy in a, in a home reading the Torah, hearing about God. And then what happens, his family in that horrific chapter, they're, they're taking to a, a Nazi death camp. Here he is, a little boy standing in that death camp. And in his book, Night, he talks about that night that murdered his God. Hopeless. Ever been there? Let's not be too hard on these women. Let's not be too hard on Ellie Wiesel. But I think we all know what it's like to come to God with duty but no expectation. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed. I had a son who was at St. Jude's for five years, Children's Hospital, with a life-threatening disease. For five years, I prayed, God, 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 just cure him, cure him, cure him. And over time, I found myself bringing my spices, praying out of duty. But, but there was a, yeah, right, no expectation. Some of you, maybe you've come to church tonight, and maybe there's a crisis in your life, but, but you're here, and you've had to drag yourself here. You're out of duty, but there is no expectation. There's a sense of hopelessness. You know, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm back in North Carolina now, and you've got to understand, as a black man, I'm, I'm somewhat rare in that I can actually trace my lineage to pre-emancipation proclamation days. We understand that ugly chapter of, of slavery. They didn't keep good records on the slaves, but my grandfather actually grew up in Catawba County. My great-great-grandfather, Peter, grew up in Catawba County, North Carolina. He was a slave there. According to family tradition, my great-great-grandfather, Peter, loved Jesus, was illiterate, and memorized almost the whole New Testament. How does an illiterate man memorize almost the whole New Testament? He had his children read to him from the same sections of Scripture over and over again. And that not only got the word into them, it got the word into him. 
According to Scripture, Peter was, while a slave, a praying man. A slave who prays. What keeps a slave praying? What keeps a man branded as cattle praying? What what keeps a man shackled in chains coming back to the Bible over and over again? I'll tell you, my great-great-grandfather was convinced that this life cannot be it. He had hope, the kind of hope that the songwriter wrote about years later when the songwriter wrote, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives salvation to impart you Ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. My great-great-grandfather had hope. And that hope was not optimism. Optimism is circumstantial. Hope is fixed on a reality, the writer of Hebrews says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Jesus Christ. So what does the resurrection do for me when the alarm clock goes off next week and I've got to go to class? What does it do for me? It takes me from hopelessness to hope. But there's one more thing. Look again or listen again to the story in verse 4, so here are these women, they get to the tomb. They don't find a body there. Verse 4 says that while they were perplexed. Again, Luke is writing in Greek, and the Greek word for perplexed is an interesting word. It literally means without resource. The idea here is these women don't have a category for this. Wait a minute, we came to the tomb. We expect to see a dead body. There's no dead body. There. They're without resource. They're, they don't have a category for it. They're, here it is. Their mind is blown. They're freaking out. And while they're freaking out, two brothers show up in a dazzling white suit. We know them to be angels. And they say this, verse 5, as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified? And on the third day, he told you this. He's not here, he's risen, he's alive. What does the resurrection do? It takes us from hopelessness to hope. Secondly, the resurrection takes us from this life to the next life. And this is the message of the resurrection, that death does not have the final say. Because this life is not the ultimate life. This life is just a blip on the continuum of eternity. 
Apostle Paul speaks to this when he wrote to the Corinthians. Look at it with me. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I like that. Oh, death, where is your sting? Did you know a honeybee can only sting you once? You know what happens to that honeybee when it stings you? It dies. The stinger rips through its digestive tract. And it dies. This thing stings you, and if it stings you, yes, it hurts, but you never have to fear that same bee stinging you again. Paul says, oh, death, where is your sting? On the cross, Jesus Christ took death's honeybee sting. And three days later, he got up with all power in his hands. Which means this, if you're in Christ and should God tarry, we're going to die. Eat as much kale salad as you like. We are going to die but we will never get stung twice by death. Jesus Christ took the stinger. That is why Jesus Christ would say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I love this. Do you, Jesus says, believe this? Daniel Simmons, who's here tonight, I, I sent him a text a couple of, uh, of weeks back. I had, I had read this, this article in the Atlantic magazine. Maybe some of you read the Atlantic. And it was written by a, uh, by, by a man, one of, uh, one of the great philosophers of our time. Um, this man, Tim, just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And unless God performs a miracle, he's, he's going to die. So here's this dying man just kind of reflecting on life. And look at with me at what Tim says. Tim says, since my diagnosis, Kathy, that's his wife, Kathy and I have come to see that the more we tried to make a heaven out of this world, the more we grounded our comfort and security in it, the less we were able to enjoy it. To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. Some of you, you're working, so you're, you're studying and, and wanting to achieve so much in college and go for it. Pursue your dreams. Some of you are going to make a ton of money and you're going to have the wonderful house and you know, wonderful cars and all that other stuff. But you'll have nothing on Solomon read his memoirs. They're called the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's a guy by today's dollars, billionaire. Had a thousand women. Denied his eyes nothing. And what does he say over and over again? In fact, the clinical psychologist reading Solomon's memoirs, this billionaire, she said, if if I were his, his therapist, I would diagnose him with depression. Over and over again, Solomon says, vanity of vanities. And some of y'all are like, well, let me make a billion dollars first and reach my own conclusion on that. 
Friends, I've done a lot of funerals, and I've seen a lot of crazy things. I've never seen a U-Haul truck at a cemetery. Naked we came into this world, and naked we shall return. What matters is not your zip code. What matters is not your GPA. What matters in the question of life is, what did you do with Jesus? Life is filled with disappointments. 2020 was something else, wasn't it? Who here didn't experience some kind of disappointment in 2020? We all experienced the pandemic, and it's crazy to think that this virus carried by this one individual totally upends life as we know it. This virus changes everything. It's, it's, it's changed kind of what you thought college experience would be about. It's, it's changed what we thought our work experience would be about. It's, it's changed everything. It's changed relationships. It's, it's changed sporting events. One virus carried by one individual impacts everything and upends life as we know it. The Bible says something interesting about another virus. In Romans chapter 5, the Bible says that sin entered the world through one man and infected everyone. Everyone born into this world, save Jesus Christ, we came into this world a sinner. You don't have to teach kids a course on being selfish. Just how we're just naturally wired. David would say in Psalm 51, Behold, I was, I was born in sin. I was brought forth in iniquity. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The pandemic of sin impacts all of us. It keeps us socially distant. We hide behind lies and deception. In fact, it impacts creation. Paul would say, all of creation groans because of sin. Just the other week, I got the vaccine. You know, you understand historically how vaccines work. Vaccines, in simplistic terms, take a little bit of the problem and inject it in you so that you'll be able to build up some antibodies. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ got on a cross and he provided the vaccine to sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So that you and I might be the righteousness of Christ. The cure for sin is not moralism and trying harder and I'll just make good choices. You can't make enough good choices. That's why we need a Savior. Jesus Christ is his name. Jesus says, I am not a way. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And tonight I want to offer you Jesus. I don't believe anybody's here by accident. I don't offer you religion. I don't offer you a, just a church to go to. I don't offer you a tradition. I offer you Jesus Christ one who loves you so much he took on all of your sins paid the price and rose to new life that's the Jesus I offer 
In just a few moments, I'm going to make this offer, and I believe some of you are going to say yes. You've been prayed for all this week. And at the same time, I want to offer for you to become baptized. And there's three groups of people here today. Some of you haven't said yes to Jesus yet. And I believe tonight you're going to say yes to Jesus and you'll have a chance to get baptized. Others of you, you've said yes to Jesus maybe weeks before, months before, or years before. But for whatever reason, you've never gotten baptized. And we want to offer an opportunity for you to do that tonight. There's a third group of people who are here, and you said yes to Jesus, and you got baptized, but maybe it was as a kid, or, you know, you didn't quite understand what was going on, or maybe it was at a time in your life where you, you weren't really taking ownership of your faith for yourself. We want to offer you an opportunity tonight to get baptized. What, what is baptism? I, I spent the last four years in the Bay, so forgive me for my tech talk. Um, baptism is your IPO. It's your initial public offering. It's you just kind of going on record publicly in front of a group of people who are going to be here celebrating and cheering you on, saying, I'm surrendering my life to Christ. He's Lord of my life. And I'm acknowledging that, that Jesus is the sufficient one who paid for all of my sins and gives me new life. This act of baptism doesn't make you saved. In fact, baptism is sort of like the wedding ring. On July 3rd, 1999, I, I got married to the love of my life, Corey. And we exchanged vows, and then we exchanged rings. Taking this ring off my finger doesn't make me unmarried. All this ring is is an outward expression of a covenantal commitment. And some of you are saying, well, I don't have to be baptized. That's like a, that's like a married person saying, uh, I don't have to wear my wedding ring. I don't think that's going to go over too well in your home. But what this ring does is uh, it announces to the world that I'm taken. It announces to the world that I'm not my own. That's what baptism is. It's, it's announcing to the world that I'm not my own. I've, I've surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. Some of you may be um, filled with objections right now. You, you might be saying, well, you know, it doesn't take all that. I don't have to be baptized. You know, it's kind of an additional, optional, extra, slow your roll. Actually, baptism is a commandment in the scriptures. Uh, others of you are saying, well, yeah, I'd love to be baptized, but I just didn't bring any gear. Like, I don't, I don't have the appropriate clothes. And I want to tell you, we got you covered. We got t-shirts right now, we got shorts, we got uh, shower caps, hair weaves, you name it, we got you covered, like right now. Others of you are like, well, this is kind of a big deal for my family, and you know, they're not here, and I I'd love for them to be there, maybe some of my friends, I, I get all that, and I respect that, but chances are you've got a smartphone, or one of your friends here, or someone you know has a smartphone, we can capture that on video right now. We can send it to them. Well, my family might be offended. You're not offending them. You're actually fulfilling their hopes and their dreams. So we want to invite you to do that. Others of you are like, man, I rode with these people, and, uh, you know, they got to hurry up and do something else. Uh, let me just ask you, if you drove someone here, would you raise your hand right now if you drove someone here? Um, and if they say we want to get baptized, are you just going to be like, I'm out of luck? If you're going to say I'm out of luck, would you drop your hand? 
Okay, hands are still there, so you're good. Okay, you are good. In December of 1998, my wife was, no, 97. My wife was 23 at the time. She was working for ABC News. Career was going well broadcast journalism degree from Columbia. My wife was crushing it. But my wife said something was missing. She moves from New York City to L.A., takes a job with the WB Network. Her first night there, she's at a party. And at this party, this, this woman comes up to her, and they start talking, and the woman says to my wife randomly, hey, won't you come to church with me this Sunday? My wife wasn't a believer. She said, absolutely. And the woman says to her, yeah, yeah, I'd love to come pick you up, but I, I got to go somewhere right after service wife's like, no problem. And he set a time and the woman picks my wife up and my wife comes to church. They get there a little late and they're sitting way back in the overflow room. It's an old school church. The pastor's giving an altar call and the pastor's calling for someone just like I've just called for you to give their life to Jesus Christ. And my wife is feeling this, this, this tug in her spirit. She's like, that's me. But the person I'm with said that they had somewhere to go. So I'll do it later. And and the pastor gets finished with his altar call, but then he stops and he goes, I just feel like there's one more person. My wife's like, man, that's me, but this person says they got to go somewhere. He does that five more times. And finally, my wife breaks. She tears up and she says to her friend, he's talking to me. She says, I know you got to go somewhere. And her friend says, the only place I have to go is to the altar with you. She walks her down to the altar footnote to the story, that was a church I was pastoring and I saw my wife and felt compelled to be a part of her spiritual formation process. <laughs> I promise you, you're here. And as I've talked to you, you felt this tug. Something's happening. So here's what I want to do. I want our counselors to go ahead and start getting into place. Those of you who've been called to just meet with people. You could just start getting into place right now. I'm going to count to three. And at the count of three, I want everybody to just stand and celebrate. And as everybody's standing and celebrating, if you're like, I just feel like I need to give my life to Christ. I just feel like, or I need to get baptized. We want you to come down front that to you again. I'm going to count to three, and at three, all of us are going to stand up. We're going to celebrate. We're going to praise God on credit for what he's going to do. And as we're standing up and celebrating, some of you right now, you know it. Something's happening. You're going to come down front for salvation and or baptism. So, Father, would you, would you move? I believe you saw this moment in eternity past. I believe it. I don't think there's one person here who's here by accident. Everyone is here on assignment. I believe when Adam and Eve were running around in the garden looking for a fig leaf to hide under, you, you wrote this day, April 1st, 2021, on our Google Apps. This is the day someone's going to get saved. This is the day people are going to get baptized. We trust you. 
We've, we've lifted you up, Jesus. And you said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw. So we do it. Draw, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One, two, three. Let's stand and celebrate. Yes, still coming. Yes, still coming. Still coming. Still coming. We'll wait. We'll wait. Still coming. Still coming. Still coming. Still coming. Yes. Yes, still coming. Yes. Yes. Keep praising him. Bible says heaven rejoices over one. Still coming. Still coming. Still coming, still coming, still coming, still coming, still coming, still coming, still coming. Still coming. Still coming.